Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, we always do well to check in with our friends at Guns Down America. As always, in the person of the great Igor Volsky, uh, and we were just chatting offline. Igor's in Washington, D.C. He's wearing his D.C. T-shirt today. Uh, and uh, last week we got a, a step closer to D.C. statehood, to becoming the 51st state. So we're thankful to that for that. And what a difference that would make in terms of our struggle uh, to end gun violence. But we'll get into all of that. Igor, welcome back to Make It Plain, buddy. How are you? I am good, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you, as always. Um, there was this, a shooting. Do we have any more details about the shooting um, in Louisville? I think it was in and around a, a Breonna Taylor rally. Yeah, I was just reading about it before we started our conversation, Mark, and it looks like it's somebody who has been down at the protests before, who's exhibited erratic behavior, who tried to get into fights with fellow protesters, who took things that didn't belong to him. The organizers down there pushed to get him removed and kicked him out several times. And it looks like this time uh, he came back uh, with, a, with a firearm and, and killed uh, an individual who was taking photographs of the shooting. But Mark, you know, we've been closely tracking instances of armed intimidation and shootings at these protests since uh, about uh, May 26th, 27th. And we've identified just between that period, the end of May 
in about June 8th, June 9th, about 130 instances of firearms at these protests. 60 of them appear to be connected to white nationalists and white supremacists. This Louisville one isn't, it looks like, but about 60 of them have been during that period. And to me, what it really underscores is the fact that we have to raise the standard of gun ownership in this country. The fact that individuals motivated by hate or motivated by the need to disrupt or whatever they're motivated by are easily able to obtain incredibly dangerous weapons and in this instance go to protests across the country and cause harm, cause intimidation, uh, obstruct somebody's ability to exercise their First Amendment rights of freedom of speech and freedom to assemble is a big, big problem. So we yesterday called on the governor of Kentucky to really prioritize gun reform. Kentucky, as you know, Mark, has incredibly loose and permissive gun laws. It's time for that to change on the state level, and it's time for that to change nationwide. we got to increase the standard. Kentucky. The governor, Democrat or Republican, right? Now. Democrat governor in Kentucky oh. has a Republican legislature, so it's obviously difficult to get something done. But look, we have to get a conversation started. That governor has to think about what kind of executive actions he can take as an individual that are even more limited, but will move us in the right direction. But if we don't talk about it, if we don't uh, raise this as a major problem to our fundamental constitutional liberties, uh, we're not going to get anything done. So let's at least start the conversation. Has the governor responded yet or given any previous signals as to being close to our position? You know, he, I think, generally, you know, is, uh, as you can imagine, being uh, the governor of Kentucky, hasn't said too much uh, on this issue. Um, but we're going to be uh, this morning and throughout the week uh, talking to organizers down on the ground. Uh, in Kentucky and thinking through what are the best next steps towards pushing more pressure um, on, on the governor and towards really, you know, making this a priority. Let's stay in Kentucky for a minute, Igor. Kentucky, doesn't Kentucky have a senator who's also the Senate majority leader? They do. I've heard this, yes. <laughs> and he himself, if I'm not mistaken, is a handmaiden of the NRA, is it? Yes, uh, and he uh, has received, uh, I believe, right below John McCain, uh, the late John McCain, who uh, received millions of dollars from the NRA, mostly because uh, he ran for president twice, and so that those lifetime numbers really grow, as you can imagine. I think right behind him uh, is probably Mitch McConnell, uh, who too has received uh, millions of dollars from the National a rifle association and who has done his best uh, over the last several years to stand in the way of reform. You'll remember in February of last year, uh, the House of Representatives passed two pieces of legislation, uh, one expanding background checks to more gun sales, the other one closing the, that Charleston loophole uh, that allowed the individual in Charleston, South Carolina, we just celebrated the fifth anniversary, as you well know, um, to obtain the firearms he used uh, to kill uh, parishioners at the AME, Emmanuel AME Church there. Uh, that There was legislation to close that. He has stood in the path of both of those bills, hasn't even brought them up to a vote. 
Uh, and as your listeners well know and viewers, he is up uh, for re-election uh, this year in, in a fairly uh, tight race. Uh, and so there's an opportunity there for voters in Kentucky to prioritize gun reform by getting Mitch McConnell out of office. Which we should emphasize the important role voting plays in these issues, folks. Unfortunately, a lot of people think the only reason we vote is to elect or unelect a president. But when you've got someone like Mitch McConnell, who is such a handmaiden to the NRA and can impact and block important legislation for gun reform, that's when our votes become more and more urgent. And we won't even get into <clears throat> you know, 200 judges who can sit on benches and legislate um, further proliferation of guns from the bench. Right, Igor? That's that's absolutely that's absolutely true. I mean, just last week, uh, the Supreme Court turned away, thankfully, multiple challenges to laws across the country uh, that uh, challenged laws that limited the ability of individuals to carry guns outside of the home, that challenged laws in Massachusetts and Illinois specifically banning assault-style firearms and assault-style ammunition, uh, that challenged laws that required individuals in New Jersey, for instance, to demonstrate a need to obtain a license for a firearm. These are all state-based protections that have been critical in reducing gun violence rates in those states. And had the courts taken up those challenges, there would have been a, a real risk of those laws falling. And of course, then establishing a precedent that saw the Second Amendment as some kind of super right that, as we see in this case, right, allows individuals to infringe on the First Amendment rights of, of, of protesters and organizers uh, and those assembling. So um, it's incredibly important, as you point out, voting, which is clearly here connected to, to, to judges who, who review a lot of these laws. But I also have to say that it's also so uh, critical for folks on the state level to begin organizing around the gun issue. Because at the end of the day, yeah, we talk a lot about federal policy, but most gun laws are made on the local level, mostly on the state level now, because a lot of states, as you know, have these preemption laws, which prohibit local cities and towns from tightening their own local gun laws. And so that's why the more people in the states begin prioritizing this issue, thinking about it, organizing around it, the harder it is for state lawmakers uh, for for lawmakers who we send to the House of Representatives and to the Senate to simply turn a blind eye, take that check from the NRA like Mitch McConnell has done, and, and then do nothing about the issue. So, you know, our organizing around this is important. And let me just say also, as we're in this conversation about defunding the police, about restructuring the police, thinking about are there services we can take out of police departments and put them in the hands of social workers and other individuals who are trained in, um, in dealing with, with different kinds of instances. You know, that conversation, Mark, is very difficult to have in a country that, as we've discussed, has more guns than people, right? Has 393 million firearms in civilian hands. So as we think about, as cities and towns are doing around the country, 
about how can we restructure the police so that it meets the needs of all of our communities. We also have to have very honest conversations at the same time about strengthening our gun laws. Because one of the reasons, and there are many reasons, as was also discussed in the past, that the rates of police killing civilians is so much higher in America than it is in other places in the world is because Americans have the highest civilian gun ownership rates in the world. And police in America, uh, unlike in other countries, are always concerned when they do a traffic stop, does this individual have a firearm? When they go out on a domestic violence call, which are often very deadly, can this call uh, uh, produce gun violence? Uh, and so in many ways that creates a mentality, there's a lot of studies around this action, that creates a mentality um, in, in police officers that they always you know, have to have their hand on their firearm. And as we've seen, when you connect that with, with, with racism, when you connect that with a certain police culture, that leads to a disproportionate impact of African-American men uh, being gunned down by police. But that core problem of gun access really contributes to this problem that we're discussing of, uh, of brutal policing in America. And I hope that the gun issue is really woven into the analysis because it's absolutely critical. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I'd be curious, though, <clears throat> as to, you know, well, when we look at police having that concern about civilians owning guns, it, it still seems to be, and, and I know this from having, you know, spoken and taught at police academies, <clears throat> they tend to convince themselves in police culture that it is primarily and exclusively African-Americans with all these guns for the purpose of killing the police. Like we wake up in the morning and black folk just say, you know, we're going to go kill cops today. Uh, I bet if we looked at numbers, you know, there are probably more cops killed um, by white gun owners than African-Americans. Um, I was on a panel in Texas a few years ago with several chiefs of police, um, not sheriffs. And I learned something then. Because sheriffs are usually elected officials, they're in favor of gun proliferation, Igor. But this was on the eve of Texas becoming an open carry state. And these police chiefs did not want that at all. They weren't happy about that at all for the reason you just said. They said, look, everybody's gonna be walking around with a gun now. We don't know what's going on. Um, sheriffs would say, well, we wanna get reelected, so this is what we want. So it doesn't create a safe environment. And then when we look at mass shootings, the argument that, well, everybody had a gun, a good guy with a gun can stop a bad guy with a gun. But if I'm a cop and I show up and I see a bunch of people with guns, I don't have the luxury of trying to determine the good guy from the bad guy. I just see a bunch of people with guns. So you're right, it's crazy. And it makes sense when we look at what other countries do when it comes to this. And there isn't as much gun violence. But then too, other countries are doing better with the pandemic than the United States is doing. So other countries, 
are doing better all the way around on a lot of yeah. these yeah. a lot of these subjects. So um, you mentioned though that of some of the violent incidents in some of these protests, you all have tracked some of them, and it's approximately a hundred, some uh, yeah, about one hundred and thirty, yeah, over the course about, of June, basically, yeah, and about sixty were linked to white supremacist organizations? Well, so as you've seen, Mark, and there's been so much reporting around this Boogaloo movement, uh, which is a movement of mostly white men. Some of them are openly white racists and and, um, neo-Nazis and white nationalists. Others aren't. uh, That organize around this notion of a second civil war coming uh, and that war being used to overthrow the government and maybe establish a white-only state for some of them and for others just to live in some uh, personal freedom utopia, I suppose. I'm not sure exactly what what it is they're fighting for, but what they're now doing um, is arming themselves incredibly heavily, entire arsenals of assault weapons, of handguns. Uh, They're trading blueprints for 3D printed guns using Facebook. Uh, They are trading um, recipes for building explosives in order to cause damage. These individuals and this loose group of folks that organize using Facebook and and TikTok and other kinds of social media are very good at exploiting crises. So you saw them at the reopen rallies uh, that we saw in in, uh, April and May around the country. You see them in these Hawaiian shirts. Uh, you, we saw them as we've been tracking at the George Floyd protests over uh, late May and, and, and early June and into mid-June. Um, and so these folks are incredibly dangerous because they are incredibly armed. And part of their organizing principle is anti-government, anti-law enforcement. Uh, there was an individual, you saw this, in Oakland, California on May 25th, uh, who's actually an active duty Air Force police officer who killed uh, a police officer, a law enforcement official, um, and is now, of course, standing standing trial for it. But your, that goes back to your original point, Mark, is that a lot of these folks who very actively organize around a violent anti-police agenda, right? It's one thing to make arguments that we should reduce the size of police as a peaceful demonstrator. It's another to stockpile firearms in order to go out and murder uh, police, or what Boogaloo actually refer to as alphabet boys, which are folks from, um, you know, the different federal agencies, uh, and, and go out and, and start shooting them. Um, and those individuals are mostly white, uh, overwhelmingly white. Right. Uh, it's also true that g- concentration of gun ownership is significantly higher among primarily white men. Um, and it's also true, I'll say, that there's some research out there, particularly from Harvard, that finds two different things. One is, in states with higher rates of gun ownership, there are, there are more instances of police officers dying in homicides than in states that have lower rates of gun ownership. And the opposite is true, that in states with higher rates of gun ownership, you as a civilian are more likely to be killed by police than you are in states with lower rates of gun ownership. So this question of how many guns are out there in the civilian population appears to be a factor 
in a how police interact with you and you apply you know the the, the race um, a layer here and and that also changes right um, but but the question of basic gun ownership uh, I think is something we we really have to have to tackle because it's part of this problem yeah wow um, so so boogaloo is is prevalent in in a lot of these situations they exploit these situations because they use these situations to recruit because yeah. if you think about it there there is some overlap right between folks between the boogaloo folks of this extremist ideology of we're actually going to go out and kill government officials and law enforcement officials and protesters who you know who have a lot of very rightful anger and frustration with police and police culture and police systems and police policies and it's in that kind of um you know where the two ovals intersect that these boogaloo folks are hoping to recruit more and more people to their cause would you say boogaloo and i know you all been looking at this very closely are they getting stronger yes Chase? Yes, there's some data out there indicating that they've seen incredible growth on mainstream platforms like Facebook and Instagram. In the beginning of this year, Mark, and really into last year, they were really limited to uh, kind of the more extremist channels like 4chan and 8chan and all of this stuff that I'm assuming you and I are not on. But really starting with, you'll remember on January 20th, that huge protest of armed intimidators in Richmond, Virginia, as the state was think, was was debating passing critical gun reform. Uh, thousands of them descended in, in military gear and, and with weapons. That was a big organizing moment for them. And they begin, began to spill, spill out their organizing into the real world, showing up with firearms. And also their digital organizing migrated from these more extremist platforms into mainstream platforms like Facebook and Instagram. That's only grown with COVID. That's only grown with the George Floyd protests. Facebook and Instagram and uh, Reddit and Twitter say that they are trying to limit it in all kinds of different ways. But I am telling you, they are not doing enough because these individuals, as we speak right now, are using, for instance, the Facebook file feature where you can send files to each other to send each other the, those 3D printed gun instructions, to send each other um, how to make a bomb instructions, to send each other um, leaflets about what happens when the civil war occurs and how they can spread propaganda across the country about it in order to win it. This is incredibly dangerous because these people are armed. And in the system of law that we have in this country, in most states in America, it's so easy to obtain the firearms that they're stockpiling. Igor, obviously we're hearing all of the stories about advertisers withdrawing from Facebook because of some of the behavior you just described. But let me ask you this. Um, has Facebook also been complicit with the NRA and the movement for the proliferation of guns? I'm, I'm just curious in terms of platform being used for that generally as well. Well, let me let me say a couple of things. So it, it is undeniable, I believe, that Facebook has not done enough to limit hate on their platform. And I say this because in 2016, Facebook 
commissioned or, or you know, conducted, I should say, um, an analysis of their extremist organizations and found that the recommended page feature uh, of Facebook recruited a great number of people into these extremist organizations. And I forget the number now, but, it, but it's, it's fairly significant. And did Facebook at that point in 2016, when it discovered that its platform was being used to recruit extremists, do anything substantial about it? No. Now that there's this national conversation uh, about what we need to do as a nation to reform brutal police culture, to reform racist laws, uh, and you have this incredible coalition of civil rights organizations coming together and urging Facebook to take action, and you have advertisers, over 100, what is that, 125 advertisers, saying they're going to pause advertising on the platform. Only, well, they've, they've done stuff before, but really... Uh, now they're, they're trying to have an active conversation and brag about the things that they are doing. And they are doing some things. But I think the larger point is, is that A, it's not enough. B, it's not nearly as proactive as it needs to be. You know, they, they like to use the claim that they're able to take down 90% of violent content before it's even flagged for them. That's, that's fine. But imagine, Mark, if... Uh, United Airlines or Delta or whoever told us that 90% of their um, pilots are sober. They could guarantee you that 90% of right. Well, how would you how would you feel about that? And for a company that's the size of Facebook, that has the resources of Facebook, there's absolutely no reason why the policing of extremist pages can't be much more aggressive than it is now. Because the fact that the company has known about the problem since 2016, and we're now in 2020, and we have more hate groups organizing on Facebook and other digital platforms than ever before. And a lot of that hate, as we've been discussing, pouring over into, pouring out into the real world only underscores the fact that A, we need to do more, and B, they need to do more. You and I haven't talked um, since some of the clashes in the protests, particularly at the White House, yeah. um, during which time Trump invoked the Second Amendment, didn't he? Um, what, I don't understand it, what does that have to do with anything in this current climate, particularly, you know, as we're dealing with a pandemic and a police demo? Well, Mark, uh, as, as you all know, there is a long history in the conservative movement of creating this idea of insurrectionism within many of their uh, most devoted adherents. And it's this idea that you need to arm yourself in order to protect yourself from your government. And it's something that political leaders on the right have really stoked because A, it brings their base closer to them, B, it helps gun manufacturers sell more guns. C, it helps the NRA pull in more members. And it really serves as kind of the glue of this broader conservative ideology about the need for smaller government. And this general distrust of government, which of course is 
uh, really the common factor of a lot of conservative political ideology. And over the last you know, several decades now, you've had conservative leaders stoke this idea of you need a gun in order to protect yourself from the government. You'll remember in 2010, Sharon Engel, uh, who ran against uh, Harry Reid um, in, in, in Nevada, uh, talk I, about second... Her name. I'm sorry. It's not Sharon Engel? Sharon? Yeah, you said it right. No, I just had a moment of PTSD when you mentioned her name. Oh, yes, yes. But, but, she, but she talked about um, the fact that people would need, you know, Second Amendment remedies uh, if Harry Reid, you know, isn't able to be voted out of office. Uh, you see people like Rand Paul talk about the fact that the, if the election doesn't go um, their way or if it doesn't elect more Republican office holders, then you're going to need Second Amendment remedies. You saw Donald Trump uh, earlier in 2016 talk about uh, Second Amendment people taking action if, if Hillary is elected president and appoints justices to the court that they, they disagree with. It's this idea of individuals who take up firearms as super citizens who are able and who have the right to, um, to use their guns in order to intimidate democratically elected lawmakers, democratic government, um, and it's incredibly dangerous, but it's a big through line in, uh, in, in conservative thought. So Donald Trump, when he was talking about the Second Amendment, when he, he made those remarks, that was um, a, real, um, a, a real wink wink to a lot of these folks who are bringing arms to these weapons. Uh, I'm sorry, who are bringing arms to these protests to right. continue to do that. Yeah. And, and yeah, a little bit louder than a dog whistle, for sure. A little bit louder, yeah. This is not immediately related, but I just want to ask you this because this is prevalent now. I mean, it's, it's revelatory. You know, can you expect a president or commander in chief or the party he serves to really care about the way gun violence has cost so many of our lives when they're okay, Igor, with Russia putting bounties on American troops in Afghanistan. If, if that doesn't clear all of this up, <laughs> what does? I know that's not immediately related to what you do, but if you cool with obviously guns killing American troops uh, and you know it making money for, or another country putting up money to do it, you probably don't care about guns killing civilians and gun violence in this country. You know, Mark, I, I am really having a hard time understanding, and I'm sure you are and many of your listeners are as well, of how this administration is currently operating in this, with this sense of literally nobody's life matters. I mean, you saw on Friday, the vice president speaking at the coronavirus task force, refusing pointedly, although now I think he walked it back, refusing to say that people should wear masks. The story broke right after that at that rally um, in Oklahoma, that Trump officials were removing social distancing signs out of that arena 
to make sure people really didn't social distance when we know and all the science obviously shows that social distancing masks help stop the spread of the coronavirus. So I, I am having a hard time understanding um, why this administration believes there's an advantage to more Americans dying. It'd be one thing, you know, if um, if we were only talking about black and brown communities, right, you'd understand that the president has multi- on multiple occasions privately, at least, has said, these are not my voters. I don't care what happens to them. The fact that he's, you know, making structural changes like trying to take people's health care away is only a testament to that, how much he doesn't care about um, communities that aren't him. But he's also now in a place where he appears to not care about the people who vote for him. So I, this complete disregard for human life, uh, just in general, I, it it confounds me. uh, It it really does. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's absolutely sickening and frightening. You all too at Guns Down America folks doing great work. Well, first let me start here. Last time we talked, we were trying to get Subway to prevent or denounce open carry in his restaurants. Any update? On that. Yeah, so we're still we're still working on that, Mark. Um, we're working uh, on reaching out to individuals who've lost family members at subway shootings. As, as we've discussed, there are so many shootings at subways uh, all across the country. Um, we're working locally um, with uh, that particular franchise owner um, in Raleigh, North Carolina, whose uh, store was the site of that armed protest, which, by the way, were the Boogaloo people as well. Um, so that that's really an, an ongoing effort. And of course, part of our larger effort uh, to make the case to businesses all across the country that they pay the price for this nation's lax gun laws and that it's in their business interest uh, to begin pushing for, for tighter restrictions and to really join the American people writ large um, in helping us build safer communities with fewer guns. Uh, you all also have been looking at companies overall, haven't you, uh, in terms of whether they're taking corporate, uh, uh, behaving with corporate lip service yeah. or actually taking corporate action um, when it comes to issues of systemic racism and, and discrimination. Uh, so as you all see, Guns Down America is walking, chewing gum at the same time. Talk to oh, us yeah. about that effort and what you've been doing with that. You know, Mark, one of the things we need to talk more about in in the gun violence prevention movement is the amazing work that's being done all around the country by community-based organizations that work to reduce violence in their communities, working with violence interrupters uh, who are folks who know know communities well. Um, and, and, and work with folks who are likely to perpetuate violence or to be victims of violence um, in order to, uh, to change certain behaviors so that folks put the guns down and talk about any problems they might have and resolve them in different ways, different nonviolent ways. Those kinds of community initiatives have been incredibly successful in reducing everyday gun violence in places like uh, Boston in, in the 90s and places like Milwaukee and places uh, uh, like, like Baltimore uh, to some degree. And what we're trying to do and what we're working on now, Mark, is partnering with a lot of those fantastic voices in pushing large corporations 
to really invest in, in, in those communities and invest in those kinds of initiatives because they are having a big impact on the ground of not only reducing everyday gun violence, but also reducing the over-policing of, of black and brown communities. Because of course, if you can stop uh, an instance of gun violence uh, through, through, um, uh, through violence interrupters, um, that not only saves lives, but that also offers people all kinds of, of, of different opportunities. So um, it's great to see companies all across the country tweeting the right things, putting out press statements that are supportive, but they really need to do a lot more. They yeah. need to invest in communities in their own backyard. They need to ensure that the cultures in at, at their companies are, are equal and just and welcoming. They need to make sure that there are pathways of advancement to the C-suite of these major corporations. They need to make sure that there are employment opportunities for returning citizens um, in this country. These are all critical steps they need to be taking if they're serious about racial justice, if they're serious about reducing gun violence. This is an incredible piece of research you've done. I'm just going through this. Folks, just, just about every company you can think of is listed here in terms of what they've done and not done. And frankly, a lot of it is a bunch of statements and social media posts. That's not enough. And people should go here and look uh, where they spend their money. Y'all going to 7-Eleven all the time. 7-Eleven. Response, none, zero, when it comes uh, to systemic racism and racial injustice. Um, all the places where people shop, um, CVS Health, in a statement on Instagram, CVS outlined the ways they would work to ensure black and brown colleagues have fair access to opportunities for advancement and development including at senior level positions. They also named the recent victims of racial injustice. Costco, nothing. Um, Best Buy, um, a, a statement from the CEO. I mean, these are places where, where we spend our m money. Nike released an ad. Uh, 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 Target, here's another one. Everybody goes to Target. Target shows support through social media and letter from the CEO. Uh, provided resources to help families in Minnesota and support employees and shut down stores with 14 days pay, pledge partnership with community members to address structural racism. And look, these uh, are my, you know, I don't want to dismiss these statements. These statements move us in the right direction, right? It's so important in my view to have corporate voices join uh, the movement of so many Americans all across the country demanding social racial justice. You know, they are able to reach audiences that you and I can't. They're able to provide political cover for politicians. That's all, it's all important. But what we're arguing is, is that it needs to be statement and action, right? This and action. And that action can't just be giving money to national organizations. And look, I love working with, with our friends at the Urban League and the NAACP and the National Black Lives Matter organizations. They're doing incredible work at this uh, at this moment and have been for years 
um, to get us to a place where we're able to have the kind of conversations we're now having. But what that also needs to include is support for local infrastructure, for local communities that are dealing with gun violence, uh, that are dealing with the structural inequalities and what comes out of that every single day. They're doing the hard work on the ground to reduce gun violence in these communities. They're on the front lines right. and they also need support, particularly for you know a company, for instance, um, like McDonald's that's headquartered in Chicago, a place that I think just this weekend I saw uh, had 56 people uh, die uh, from guns. That's a place where McDonald's can really invest, can invest in its economy, in neighborhoods that have been forgotten and are underinvested, can create employment opportunities for folks in those communities, can help directly fund those local programs over the long term, not over two or three years, but over 10, 15, 20 years. You know, they have a responsibility to their employees and to their customers, to the communities that they serve. Uh, and, and, and we're going to be pushing them with our local partners over the next coming weeks and months to continue to do more and to realize that investment in these communities has to be ongoing and has to be a key, an absolutely key political and, and a corporate priority. In fairness, two companies I mentioned, Nike did pledge $40 million commitment over the next four years to support the black community. Unclear where these investments will be directed. Target, um, $10 million investment from Target and the Target Foundation to support longstanding partners such as the National Urban League and the African American Leadership Forum. Uh, we'll also add new partners in the Minneapolis, St. Paul area and across the country. And so hopefully that is inclusive of some of those organizations on the ground that you just named. This is an incredible Google spreadsheet. And we're, we're, we're trying to update it every week, Mark. Man, I don't know anybody who's doing this. So, you know, Guns Down America is your one-stop shop uh, for all of this. Um, I want to invite you all. Um, I want to give you, of course, always we invite you to go to uh, gunsdownamerica.org. But for, can, can they find the spreadsheet there? It's right, on our, it's right on our homepage, yep. There it is, yes. Demand corporate action on Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, that's there. Um, and you can see the tracking document by just clicking on that, gunsdownamerica.org. Incredible work. Um, obviously, a lot more work that needs to be done. We cannot relax, even though we're stuck at home. And look, Igor's a bad man. He's confined. <laughs> and he's doing all of this while he's confined, y'all. You know, some of y'all ain't doing nothing, and y'all have violated the quarantine all out in the street and everything. But Igor, from his own home, uh, is a, a, a threat uh, to the status quo. And so we appreciate that. Uh, well, Mark, I, w I wouldn't be able to do it without our great team at, at Guns Down America at GunsDownAmerica.org. We invite uh, folks to, to become involved in this effort, um, in our movement. We need everybody, absolutely everybody, uh, to continue to fight uh, against armed intimidation, against companies not doing enough uh, to, to reduce gun violence. Um, and to ultimately create a pathway for us to pass real reforms to build a future with fewer guns. Igor, thank you, buddy.
Appreciate GunsDownAmerica.org, folks. Check it out. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.